0: Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new to our ministry, we're glad you're here. Please leave a comment below to let us know you're with us. Now, I don't know how many of you are into the Christmas spirit yet, but we'll try to get you there with a new series we're starting today called Christmas Promises. We're looking at the Christmas promises of a coming Messiah that were given to Israel in the Old Testament. Today we start with the promise of a royal priest. Now to feel the impact of these ancient promises, it's important that we remember what they're being contrasted with. And if you haven't heard, you just need to to look around you to uh, listen in on what's happening in our culture. You can't turn on the television these days without a Christmas romance to convince us that this is a season to be looking for a partner. Most modern Christmas songs are the same. The most famous has to be Mariah Carey's All I want for Christmas is you. And we know she wasn't writing the song about Jesus. It would take a very shrewd cultural analyst to show us the problem with the message of these songs and movies. I've managed to find one in a young philosopher named Ariana Grande. In her 2014 song, she wrote the following, Santa tell me if you're really there, don't make me fall in love again if he won't be here next year. If you listen to the lyrics, it's as if she's holding Christmas hostage until she gets a clear promise from Santa. She refuses to let Christmas music put her in a festive mood. She's even avoiding mistletoe. And the reason she gives is that she's been let down before by guys that she put all of her hope in, only to be crushed when it didn't last. Not surprisingly, there's no answer from Santa in the song. And the message seems to be that the promise of Christmas romance is a false hope. If you put all your hope there, then you're setting yourself up for a huge letdown because human love comes with no guarantees. Who would have figured that Ariana Grande would burst the secular Christmas bubble for us? Now that doesn't mean that romance is wrong, but it's the wrong place to look for ultimate hope and meaning. Today's passage gives a sure and more lasting promise, and I want to challenge you to examine what place this promise has in your own life. You may say that you believe in Jesus, for instance, but your hope, your actual thing that you long for and trust in and look forward to, it might be in the same place as Mariah Carey. Examine your hope as we consider this promise. Now, it comes in the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's a portion of Scripture that the early Christians came back to again and again as they reflected on Jesus, and it's found in Psalm 110. It's just one verse, uh, and we will uh, work out the implications of that verse, but if you'd follow along with me, I'll read from verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, whenever we read scripture, we need to read it with an awareness that it was written to real people with real hopes and real dreams, but also real problems. Often the Bible has little impact when we read it in the abstract. And so if you heard me reading that verse and said, boy, if that's what we're going to be talking about for the next half an hour, I think I'm going to check out. Well, we're not gonna read it in the abstract. We're gonna see how this this verse, this promise, ministered to a real person. Now, the heading for this psalm tells us that it's a psalm of David. So it was written by David, but it's not written about David. Jesus quoted from this psalm and actually made a big deal of that fact. We know that this psalm is written by David, but not about David because of, of verse one. It begins with the simple words, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, that's confusing already, right? If you look carefully, the first Lord that you see there in all caps is a reference to the personal name of God, Yahweh, the I Am. The Jews were afraid of not treating God's name as holy enough, and so they pronounced the word Lord instead of his actual name, Yahweh. Most English Bibles help you to see that by printing the word Lord in all capitals. The actual word Lord or uh, Master, Sir, uh, that 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 word follows after it. So when David says the Lord says to my Lord, he's describing words said by God to a person that David sees as superior in position and authority to himself. Jews have long understood this to be a reference to the Messiah. Now, when David recorded this, he didn't know whether it referred to his son or his grandson or a distant descendant, but he knew that there was a greater king coming. And God promised him things about this coming king to encourage him and to give him hope. And I believe they can give us hope too. Now, the fact that David was describing to, here, God was describing to David promises about his descendant Is a hint that David is getting on at this point in his life. He's not so much at the age where he's looking forward to all that he'll do. More often than not, he probably found himself looking back at what he'd already done. To put him in context, he's closer to Bob Dylan's age than our Christmas philosopher, Ariana Grande. As David looked back, he could point to some great victories and he'd experienced much of the faithfulness of God. But he was also A man of deep regret. As he looked back, he couldn't help but remember his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. He'd feel the pain of his failure to bring justice when his daughter Tamar was raped. He'd remember his inability to forgive his son Absalom. And he couldn't help but fear the consequences that his sins might have on future generations. I'm sure there were times when he feared for the future regretted his past. Ever feel like that? Well, God's solution to David's past regret was a future hope. In the psalm, God speaks of a coming descendant of David who will experience great victory from God. But I don't think that's the part of the message that spoke to him the most. David's experience of the satisfaction of success was fleeting, didn't last what would have given him greater hope was the promise in verse 4 of a future king who was holy enough to be a priest. David knew that in many ways, he wasn't even holy enough to serve as king. Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 and 19, they had prescribed that a king should write out his own personal copy of the law, and he was to read it daily to learn to fear the Lord and to keep his commandments. Meditating on God's word, That had been one of David's joys as a king. But he was still all too aware of his shortcomings. And the more he read, the more he became convinced that he'd fallen short of God's standard. But priests were called to be even more holy though. They had special clothes and special ceremonies to uniquely set them apart for God. David knew how far he'd fallen from God's standards for him as king. The promise that one of his descendants would be righteous enough to serve as both king and priest, that would have filled him with hope. Christmas for David was proof that the Messiah would succeed where he had failed. He could know that the future was bigger than his shortcomings. He would see that God's plan wasn't derailed by his stumblings. And maybe you need to be remind, reminded of that this year. Personally, I'm often tempted to see my life like David did. I imagine that everything's riding on my performance. The health of the church, the faith of my kids, the quality of my marriage. And the Bible warns that there are consequences to our actions. But Christmas is proof that Jesus can succeed even where I failed. A king holy enough to be a priest could come from the line of an adulterer and a murderer. That means that God can redeem all of our lives. Where there's genuine humility and repentance, God can replace regret with hope. The future isn't defined by our past. And that's something worth singing about this Christmas. If you're struggling with addiction or a broken marriage, all I want for Christmas is you. That isn't the hope that you need. If you're looking back on your mistakes, the mistakes you made with your kids or the blunders you made with your finances, and the promise of a Hallmark Christmas movie may give you an escape But it's not a solution. Christmas is proof that Jesus can succeed where you failed. But as David reflected on this promise, this promise that one of his descendants would be a priest, it wouldn't have just been the holiness that would have stood out to him. He would have been comforted by all that a priest could do. That's because a priest represents us before God. They functioned as intermediaries between a holy God and an unholy people. Before God had set apart priests to represent him, people struggled for the lack of them. For instance, when Job went through his period of terrible suffering, he longed for a mediator with God. He wanted someone who understood what he was going through, but was also able to speak to God. In Job chapter 9, uh, verses 32 and 33, it says this, Job speaks and he says, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. You felt this, right? Many of you have teenage mediators between you and your technology, and if they're not available and you've got problems, you're stuck. This weekend, I needed a mediator between me and my car. David knew that a priest mediates between humanity and God. And hearing this promise of a royal priest, he would know that a great mediator was coming. Christmas proclaims that he's come. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, the priests in the Old Testament were like interpreters. They were interpreters who were never quite fluent in God's language. They showed what a mediator was like, but it was like they were just placeholders for the real thing. Christmas declares that he's come. But the main job of a priestly mediator between a holy God and an unholy people is atoning for sin. Their role was to secure God's forgiveness, which he had graciously offered on the basis of a substitute sacrifice. So in Leviticus 6-7, for instance, it says this, And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. The forgiveness that David had experienced at times of temple sacrifice was the most powerful thing in his life. It was what helped him cope as he remembered the sins and failures of his past. He knew that there wasn't any ritual that could pay God off to look the other way. But God's love was so great that he had made a way for his people to be made right with him when they had stumbled and strayed. That had always been the role of the priests. But their work never seemed to be done. There were so many of them, and they continued generation after generation providing sacrifice for sin. But if God was promising the coming of one who would be priest forever, that would change things. If there was an eternal royal priest coming, he could deal with sin once and for all. He would provide eternal assurance that God's people were forgiven and accepted. It describes that in Hebrews 7, starting at verse 23. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, again referring to Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're David, looking back at your sins and your failures, you want to know if there's an expiration clause on God's forgiveness. You wanna know whether the warranty runs out on God's grace in your life when your priest punches a clock at the end of the shift. The promise of an eternal priest, that was God's guarantee that his forgiveness would be eternal. His standing with with God wouldn't be jeopardized by the old priest's retirement. Christmas is proof that Jesus can cover your sins eternally. And when you see this promise for what it is, you realize, What insanity it is just saying all I want for Christmas is another boyfriend or a Sony PlayStation or all I want for Christmas is a perfect family gathering with turkey and all the trimmings, but attendance by Jesus optional. If you have a mediator with God, then you have an open line of communication with a creator who loves and understands you. If you have a forever priest, then you have forever forgiveness. Christmas is proof that Jesus can cover your sins eternally. But David wasn't just promised that the Messiah would succeed where he'd failed. He wasn't just given the promise of a forever priest. What he heard revealed about the coming Messiah in verse four was that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek doesn't have the same ring to it as Emmanuel not many songs about him. But it refers to a mysterious character who appears only once in scripture, but is referred to then a number of times. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. He appeared to to Abraham in Genesis 14. Salem is related to the Hebrew word shalom. You can probably hear the similarity. And that shalom is the word of peace. It is probably an older name, this Salem or Shalom, this, this this place of peace, was probably the older name of what came to be called Jerusalem, uh, what we call today Jerusalem. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, or my king is righteous. And it says in Genesis 14:18 that he was priest of God most high. So picture now David reading this. He's looking back over his failures as a king of Jerusalem. And God tells him that one of his descendants will be a priest like Melchizedek. He'll be a priest like that ancient king of Jerusalem who was called the king of righteousness and served as priest of God most high. That would mean that this coming Messiah would be righteous in a way that was completely beyond David. And that's important because When you read the history of Israel's kings, they're always compared to David as a standard. So, for instance, when Josiah comes to the throne, it says of him in 2 Kings 22, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That was pretty good. Most of the kings couldn't even manage that level of righteousness. But David knew they needed someone greater. Melchizedek foreshadowed righteousness that was beyond David. It was a promise of a royal priest whose righteousness was beyond anything experienced in Israel. But the other significant thing that David knew about Melchizedek was that he blessed Abraham. He blessed Abraham. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all of his possessions as an offering. It was an act of profound respect and recognition by Abraham that Melchizedek was his spiritual senior. Remember, Abraham had been told that he was the one through whom blessing would come to the entire world. But Abraham meets this mysterious king of Jerusalem who's a priest of the true God, and he is blessed by him. Later writers would reflect on this. In Hebrews 7, verses 6 and 7, it says this, But this man, referring to Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It's making the point that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And the promise that a royal descendant of David would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that's the announcement that Melchizedek foreshadowed blessing beyond Abraham. The Messiah coming after Abraham and after David would somehow be greater than them both. And Jesus came and claimed exactly that. He said in John eight fifty eight, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Maybe you're thinking, well, so what? What does it matter that the Messiah would be more righteous than David and bring blessing beyond Abraham? If that's what you're thinking, then you're not alone. I think that David understood his failings and weaknesses well enough to know that people needed a greater hope than someone like him. But many others in Israel probably didn't. They were probably content with the victories he won and the peace that he brought. They were probably happy enough with their mostly holy priests and the blessing of being a child of Abraham. I say that because this particular Psalm didn't make it into the collection that we know as the book of Psalms until hundreds of years after David's death. Psalm 110 falls in what is known as book five of the Psalms, which was compiled and sung in Israel after the Israelites had returned from exile. It wasn't as if they weren't aware of this Psalm of David before that. It's just no one was too eager to sing it before. But after the last of Israel's kings had died, after the temple had been destroyed and then rebuilt on the cheap, people realized they needed a better plan. They knew they needed a better king. They saw they needed a better priest. They needed a greater hope because their future didn't look so bright. And so it was not until those intervening years between Israel's return from exile and that first Christmas that this song started rising in the charts. People realized what they were doing wasn't working. And they were encouraged that God had promised them something greater all along. Christmas is proof that Jesus has a better plan for you. And maybe you've missed that the way the people in Israel missed that. When times were good, they weren't looking for anything greater. Maybe you're thinking Christmas is a little decoration that you add to your life. Maybe you're hoping that Jesus can just tweak things a little so you can get more of what you want. But that's not what he came to do at all. He's more righteous than David. He's more holy than a Levitical priest. He brings greater blessing than Abraham. He explodes our categories and shatters our systems. If you can hear the implications of a Christmas promise like we've read today and still conclude that Jesus was just a prophet or a really good moral teacher, I don't don't have an an explanation for that. You've completely misunderstood him. David knew that a Savior this great deserve to be at the center of our lives and thoughts. For others, it took more failure, more disappointment to make them realize that. Learn from the disappointment of others so you don't have to give yourself to false hope. Christmas is proof that Jesus has a better plan for you. Now personally, as I reflect on this promise and hear that Christmas is proof that Jesus can succeed where I've failed, It helps me to remember that everything's not riding on me. My failures aren't as big as I think, and neither are my accomplishments. Christmas reminds me that Jesus is doing something far greater than anything I could come up with, and so my actions only have significance to the extent that they align with His. When I realize that Christmas is proof that Jesus can cover my sins eternally, it lifts the shame that I can feel. It gives me confidence in confronting the sin in my life because I know someone who can cover it. I don't need to hide from God because Jesus is my mediator. And when I hear that Christmas is proof that Jesus has a better plan for me, it reminds me to tear up the false plans and dreams that the world keeps pushing on me. Because like you, I'm constantly being fed the lie that I'll be fulfilled if only I have more stuff more Black Friday sales, more escape, or more influence, or more success, or more something. Christmas tells me that what I need has been in the manger all along. Jesus has a better plan for me than Mariah Carey ever did. I can rest in that, can you? If you can't, then maybe no one's popped your secular Christmas bubble yet. Let Jesus do that, and by faith, let him in. True faith involves turning from the false promises of this world and asking Jesus to be your priest and your king. As you do, you'll experience the relief of the Savior who covers our sins and leads us in blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious promises. Thank you for the promise of a Savior who is more righteous than David, who brings greater blessing than Abraham, and who is more holy and brings a more perfect sacrifice than any of the Levitical priests ever could. Father, I pray that you would help us to examine the true basis of our hope. I pray that we would find rest in your promise. I pray that even as this promise did to David, that we would find relief and comfort in it. That as we reflect on our lives, that we would see them with new eyes because of what Jesus has done. And Father, for anyone for whom this promise is still a distant reality, I pray that they might reach out and embrace it by faith. I pray that they might come to Jesus and trust in Him as their King, that they might look to Him as their priest, and that they might experience the relief of forgiveness, the acceptance before a holy God, that we can enjoy in Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope today's message has convinced you that Christmas is proof that Jesus can succeed where you failed, that he can cover your sins eternally, and that he has a better plan for you. If you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.christbc.ca. God bless. See you next time.